This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. If data is the new oil, big data is an oil field for companies, organizations, and governments. Naturally, it is being used in cybersecurity research. In this episode, we will talk about its benefits, its dangers, and the people who are providing us with tools for protecting ourselves against its collection. Our first guest uses big data to better understand hackers. Hi, my name is Amit Rechavi. I teach and uh, explore networks in the Hebrew University and in Tel Aviv University. We hear a lot about how information is gathered on us and how this hurts our privacy. But you see the positive sides of that uh, big data collection. Everybody's gathering data. concerning our daily life, our demographics, our wishes, our dreams even. And uh, it's a big threat to uh, the privacy. However, uh, you can use the data in rare occasions where gathering the data and using it might have a, a true benefit for specific populations. One example is refugees. Right. You must remember that refugees, when they're coming to Europe, they come along, they come with only part of the family, and all the ties, all the social ties that connect them to the world are now cut off. Uh, it's really hard to find some, someone yeah, you lost in the crowd. Uh, once you have data regarding the social ties of uh, each refugee, you can try to connect these lost ties and reconnect families together. This was uh, one of the things you thought about when you uh, started your research regarding uh, hackers and how they um, uh, connect and, and communicate between themselves. As you know, hackers uh, specialize in different hacking activities. And we were looking for the social networks of hackers, meaning, is it possible that one population is doing the brute force attacks and then the other population just gets the data And start to manipulate your computer. They're going to hide. They're not going to be uh, out in the open. And they're not going to say, hi, I'm a hacker and this is uh, who I talk to. So how do you find them through data? Well, of course, you, you don't find any ads saying, I have uh, hacked data of uh, 2,000 credit cards. Do you, do, do you want to get it? Sometimes you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, 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 but most of the times uh, we see that someone uh, gains access to your computer, but he doesn't use this data. And after one day, maybe one week, uh, you see the data is getting used because people are trying to get into your computer with the right password and the right username. So uh, when, when we collected more than one million brute force attacks, we found that sometimes, and we're talking about 150 occasions, data was stolen on the one hand, let's say China, And then a hacker from, let's say, United States is using the data. By looking at the behavior, we can map the concealed network between people who are making the brute force attack, meaning getting your passwords, and people who actually use it in a day, in a week, or in a month later. So there are two different types of hackers, the ones who steal the credentials and the ones who use the credentials to steal other things. Once you have those connections, what can you do with them? 
Well, first, I map these connections. And second, you can see that in uh, certain parts of the world, people are executing different kind of attacks. So if you uh, would like to come to a country, let's say South Korea, and approach them and say, well, I know you don't operate bots at all, but you have really skilled people because all they do is get uh, passwords and username and they penetrate computers. Well, this is a problem that you should deal once you'll have some governing um, body. Um, well, it's an issue that uh, it, it should be stated in the country level. So in a sense, you're providing policymakers, decision makers, with the information that they can later use to enforce um, cybersecurity through uh, laws and regulations and diplomacy? Absolutely right. And yeah, I think that with two uh, huge experts with more than one million texts, we can reach policymakers and point that we have something in hand that they didn't knew before. What are your initial findings from this research? Uh, can you pinpoint which hackers in which countries do what? Uh, surprisingly or not surprisingly, we have China and Ukraine who are experts in bots, meaning they're doing a lot of brute force attacks. And on the other hand, we got the West European countries and the Southeast countries uh, who has more human hacking activities. They are experts in intruding your computer and starting to deal with it. And are you sure that the people are in those countries? Unless, unless they use uh, Tor, um, the IP addresses that we have supposed to be good indication to the relocation they're operating from. Though we were thinking that maybe they're from, let's say, the United States and just pretending to be from China. If this is the case, then China has still a problem that many people are preferring to uh, attack from Chinese IPs. They don't do it from Israeli IPs and not from German IPs. If this is a genuine Chinese or people who are pretending to be Chinese with Chinese IPs, the problem remains. A Chinese problem. Our problem. <laughs> But the governments will speak to China about the problem that comes from their computers. Right. Are you uh, curious as to why those specific uh, kinds of hacks are happening in specific places? Are you researching that as well? I'm, I'm curious, but uh, for now we're not researching this. I think it has to do with policies and technology and enforcing the law, which in some territories is more solid and in some it's more vague. Any interesting findings about Israel? Well, Israel is not in the top 10, but we still do quite a good job in the human hacking activities. So <laughs> there's something to be proud of, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Amit Rechavi, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Like any field, big data also has positive and negative signs that uh, have a um, potential of uh, impacting our lives in dramatic ways. Uh, we're talking about that with our uh, next guest. Guy Katz from the Computer Science Department of the Hebrew University. So the good and the bad. So the good is that big data and, and the various products that you have in that field, the various black box artifacts that are, uh, are starting to revolutionize our life, they can often outperform humans in many ways. They can make better decisions, in average at least, and they really allow people who are not necessarily experts 
to very easily deploy a very powerful technological tool. But there are some downsides, and that is that once you no longer have a human in the loop, then many of the like, properties of, uh, of traditional systems no longer apply. For example, one very important thing is uh, accountability or explainability. If you have a human that makes a decision, uh, for example, a very uh, common example is uh, credit scores. In the US, your credit score is this number that uh, determines if you can apply for loans and various credit cards. We just uh, got that in Israel as well. Uh, yeah, well, so soon, uh, soon this will be a problem for us too then. Um, so once you have a human in the loop that determines these uh, scores for people, then you can ask questions. You can ask, why did I get this score? What do I need to change? Why did my neighbor get a better score than I did on all of those things? And in general, we can refer to that as accountability. But once you have a black box, uh, a sort of artifact that, that uses big data technology, you no longer understand what's going on inside. You just get the bottom line. Is that because um, big data is based on correlation and not causation, but correlation in very huge amounts? Yes. In, in general, yes. So... What the way that big data works in general is that you look at many examples, you you use a very large set of data and you look at it and you sort of generalize it. And then you get this uh, little artifact that knows how to take a question, a query and reply based on the examples it has seen before. So it's basically very, a very smart and very data based uh, bigotry. It can say if you're over 190 meters, you're uh, more likely to pay your debts on time and It can't explain it. It just knows that it's true. But then uh, you're uh, biased against shorter people. Yes, precisely. So actually, the way that you generate, the way that you use big data is that you typically have a set of existing examples. Now, if, the say, the clerks who were determining credit scores up to this point were biased against a certain population, then that bigotry, as you said, will, will carry over to the big data artifact. So really, if assuming that your initial data is not pure and unbiased, then it's very likely to assume that the big data artifact will also have the same bias. What if theoretically your data is pure, but it still has those uh, uh, assumptions that uh, cannot be explained, just uh, shown? Are we too, are we as humans too politically correct to accept that and say, okay, this is like, this is... This is fact-based and we can't argue with it and we have to uh, work according to the facts and not to our feelings, sensibilities, um, moral issues. So even if the data is pure and if, if the bias is real, I suppose that uh, you have a certain city where people are less likely to pay their debts. Even if this is completely true and, and accurate, people will still want to know why their credit score is low. Right? And, and you can't just say, I don't know why the computer told me. You really need to provide some sort of explanation. And assuming there is no human in the loop, even if this is a correct assumption, you still need to be able to, to spell it out. But uh, if I'm taking your example, we can actually uh, get the uh, big data algorithms to tell us things like that. Like in a certain city, people do not uh, pay their debts. And then put a human in the loop and say, let's check why. What's special about this city and find something that we wouldn't have known without the big data. Yes. So the main challenge, the main challenge there is to get the big data artifact to spell out the, the conclusion. Right? In city X, people are less or more likely to pay their debts. And this is really not trivial for today's technology. Getting the big data artifact to explain itself is one of the major challenges that people in academia are working on. What are possible solutions? 
So one of the things that uh, we're trying, and actually I'm, I'm also doing some work in that field, is called verification. So using verification, you take one of these big data artifacts and you ask a question, right? For example, suppose you've seen many examples, you've seen how the system works, and you suspect that in city X, uh, the system assigns a lower credit score to people. Once you have that speculation, you can, using the verification technology, you can take your artifact and you can mathematically and rigor- rigorously check whether your uh, assumption is correct, your hypothesis, really. And uh, either you will prove that there is no bias against people in that uh, city, in which case you are wrong and, you know, you happily go on your way, or you will see that you were correct, and then you can start trying to reason out why the system makes this decision. You can see if this is because of some impurity in your training data, or there is some real and justified reason why credit scores in that region should be lower. Uh, are we expecting AI to become um, more efficient and more uh, explainable as it uh, develops? Definitely. I think these are some of the challenges that very smart people are working on. And I, I will be surprised if... Uh, I, I very much believe that things will improve. Uh, but right now, the state of the art is that this is still an open problem. So a computer can beat me in Go, but... It can't explain how it did it. It can't teach another person to beat me at go. Yes. Uh, in general, I think that's that's a correct statement. So getting the getting AlphaGo, the the computer software that beat the world champion to explain, say, write out a set of rules, an algorithm that a human should follow in order to be the best uh, player in the world in go will be very tricky at this point. I don't think that can be done right now. Will it be uh, possible in the future? <laughs> Do we have something to look forward to? I think so. I think maybe not. Well, obviously, things will not start with such complicated examples, but uh, I think so. I think there are some uh, very promising research directions uh, towards explainability and accountability. And I believe that in the future, we will see uh, these uh, big data artifacts explaining to us, at least r- vaguely, why they're making the decisions that they make. Guy Katz, thank you very much. Thank you. Another problem with big data is its potential to harm our privacy. Not only in having troves of data collected about us, but also in big data analysis, which provides excess information that we did not even know could be concluded from that data. For example, a smart city system operating in China was found to utilize face recognition technology to keep track of specific residents as well as identify their ethnicity. In a country where technology enables persecution of Uyghur Muslims by the authorities, this may have dire consequences. Our final guest will talk about the resistance. Hi, I'm Romy Mikulinski. I am a researcher and a writer. Uh, in the last two years, I've been the head of the graduate program in industrial design in Bezalel Academy for Art and Design. Artists have a um, um, role in society uh, of raising issues and contesting um, Wrongs. I'm also interested in designers and activists and how they take artistic strategies and contest, let's call it hegemony. They've been uh, taking more activist strands to um, promote their ideology. One of the groups, a group from Germany, this group is actually creating a platform for people to merge their face, their faces, their passport photos and create a new identity. We're talking about art collective Peng. With their piece mask ID now in the age of a uh, gun of generative adversarial networks we know that this is something that we can easily do even for people that do not exist we can create portraits but the thing is the reason why they're doing this is to trouble the authorities in Germany and to actually bring more awareness to the fact that we're constantly under surveillance 
and that um, our faces have become not only means to move from one country to another, but some sort of a database that can surrender details about us that we may not be necessarily interested in uh, giving away. It's not only about creating new faces or creating new expressions. It's also about facial weaponization. If we look at the Zach Blass concept of how our face can be uh, a war zone, technically. So what Zach Blass does is um, to call different groups and to ask them to uh, create masks that are collective masks, that they um, actually design some sort of a group mask that doesn't really hide them or surrender who they are, but they create a new identity and then they celebrate it. What they do is indeed disappear from the machine gaze, but when you walk in the street wearing this weird mask, everybody looks at you. So you create a different kind of attention. So in a sense, it's taking the old adage of, um, of internet, of being able to wear a mask, to be anonymous, to have a nickname, into the real world where we can, or we are given a chance to change who we are, what we look like. So I think that there are two ways to look at it. And, and first, you are very right. In the beginning of the internet, there was a lot of freedom. People could celebrate whatever identities they wanted to wear. And what we see in the last years, that there is a process of making sure that you are the person that goes with this IP and with this phone number and with this face, and we know everything about you. Your face could be, you know, your authentication key for your iPhone. However, the question is not only how to disappear from the machine, it's also about saving lives sometimes. So an artist or designer or an activist, whatever way he wants to um, um, define himself, like Adam Harvey, that used to live in New York and now lives in Berlin, he started in 2010 a series that is called CV Dazzle, Computer Vision Dazzle. And what is he did at the time, and the technology wasn't as advanced as it is today, is to confuse machine vision And make sure that it doesn't see a full face. And it had to do with different makeup and wearing your hair in a different way and creating different shading and coloring of your face. He based this project on how warships used to camouflage themselves. On the Second World War, for example, yes. So machines couldn't detect the ships or the people. However, this was 2010. So this kind of uh, do-it-yourself camouflage was effective then. These days, it's not enough to put makeup or to put your hair in a funny way. The machine could still create a portrait of you based on some you know, areas of your face. So what it does now is to create all kind of, um, or at least starting from 2016, is to create all kind of jackets or hoods that would actually not render you visible to machines because they create some sort of a thermic field. And then your face looks like a, some sort of a blob, I would say. Like you, it, you, your face is not visible. So if you wear this kind of jacket, and unfortunately, let's say you're in Yemen, and someone wants to uh, take you down, so there will not be a sure ID. Like you, you will not be identified based on your face. Invisible to drones. Invisible to drones, yet visible to humans. Still, you wear a hood. Your face is visible, but machines may not see you in the same way. way they would so we're likely to to see the uh, cliche the stock photo cliche of hackers wearing a hoodie uh, becoming a reality in in life hacking I think so too but what I wanted to propose today also is kind of a joke kind of a hack on deep fake okay deep fakes is um, an AI uh, software that takes a person's face and And implants it on a porn scene or on any whatever scene. scene like many innovative technologies it started in porn 
Uh, you take somebody's face and you put it into a porn film and it looks real. It looks as if that person really was in that film. And it's not only about faces, it can also be about your voice. And um, there are now um, all kinds of applications that take, let's say, Obama's face and put words that he may have said in different contexts and then they wrap it up. Or an impersonator, uh, such as uh, Jordan Peele in this deep fake Obama clip uh, by BuzzFeed. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. Uh, for instance, they could have me say things like, uh, I don't know, uh, President Trump is a total and complete dipshit. And it looks real, but it's totally fake. So I think that by calling attention to the situation where we no longer have truth, we no longer have, uh, or at least truth has been radically destabilized, evidence is no longer reliable, So we have this deep confusion between what happened and what did not happen, what exists, what does not exist. And uh, soon we'll have deep confusion, deeper confusion between what's human and what's not human. And what I'm trying to propose is that the more um, involvement, the more obfuscation, the more confusion artists could throw into this messy picture. For example, let's take deep fake again as an opportunity, perhaps by creating all kinds of faces that do not exist and enter them. To the databases of the government of the police of social would, networks social networks would create more confusion and would enable the authorities to be aware not only of the danger and the ease to create people that do not exist to create faces that do not exist and then attach them to people but possibly the technology could work in a different way now based on bias based on the high level of error that we now see in facial technology um, and on the fact that uh, huge companies like Amazon like Microsoft, And uh, of course, um, other companies that do have stakes in this new emerging field, they understand that this field needs regulation. They understand that there is a need of more rules. Now we look at what's happening in China, where everything is allowed, you know, citizenship has been gamified. Your face is um, key to give you score, technically. And you have a social score, like in that uh, Black Mirror episode. Great peripherals. Strangers like you, that's a plus. Healthy inner circle, it's good. Thank you. <laughs> There's a ways to go, but 4.5, certainly achievable. How long do you think? To hit 4.5? Mm-hmm. Well, barring a major setback, a public disgrace kind of deal, uh, I'd say 18 months or so. Yeah, but in real life, in China, where there's a lot of um, cameras everywhere and they keep documenting in real time who's doing what and what potential crime people may do, So, uh, for example, I heard about a woman who is a real estate agent whose face was on the, um, on the ad, on a bus. It's a commercial. She uh, actually got fined for crossing in red light for uh, pedestrians, but it wasn't her. It was her face on a bus. So just imagine creating new faces, sending them on to various locations, strategic locations, creating faces that do not exist and planting them on various scenarios. And what would happen then? Like, we know there's bias, we know there's a mess, we know there's a high level of error. Still, the machines are very, very smart, but humans may be dumb relying on them without any judgment. So why not rethink the situation and create more mess, more fluidity, a different kind of dynamics, not just, you know, this um, cops and thieves game that uh, typifies um, facial surveillance these days. Creating hybrid identities or creating multiple representations is part of our, you know, I think, rights. Of who we are and how we can be the right to be who we aren't 
exactly. the right to be who we want to be. The right not to be the same boring entity every day, in and out. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Romy Mikulinski, if that's your real name. That's my real name for now. Thank you, Ido. That's it for this episode of Lex Kibernetica. I'm Ido Kainan, and see you in cyberspace. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.